Now, will you please remain standing and turn with me to Habakkuk, uh, chap- well, actually, before Habakkuk, to Revelation 8, our New Testament reading. Revelation chapter 8. Um, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Amen. Let's turn now to Habakkuk chapter 2, bearing in mind that message of woe from that eagle at the end of the chapter, as well as the silence in heaven at the opening of the seventh seal. I'm going to read the whole chapter just for context, although we're going to be picking up at verse 5 for the text for today. Beginning with Habakkuk's, the end of Habakkuk's question. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow... Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. 
Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's Labor labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You may be seated. Last time we considered just the first part of the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's second question. First, he asked, Lord, when are you going to do something about the violence and injustice that is running rampant in Judah under King Jehoiakim? And the Lord answered, well, I'm planning to use the Chaldeans, or or Babylon, that is, as my instrument of judgment uh, against Judah and its king. So then Habakkuk, after that, wanted to know, well, Lord, how can that be? How can you let a wicked group of people like the Babylonians overrun Judah, the covenant people, when as bad as Judah is, the Babylonians surely are much worse? Last time we we saw the Lord 
acknowledge that uh, Habakkuk's assessment of Babylon is basically correct. Yes, Babylon is a wicked nation, arrogant, puffed up. And yes, Babylon's turn is coming. They too will be judged. See, God's people are going to have to wait for that. It's not going to be right now. It's coming later. And he called Habakkuk to that patient, trusting expectancy to wait with that steady confidence and hope for the promises of God. Summed up in that memorable statement at the end of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The rest of chapter 2 then goes on to give a little bit more detail about that future judgment that God has in store for Babylon. He is continuing to reassure Habakkuk that, look, Babylon is not just getting away with anything. Um, My justice extends to them as well. And so this, we might call a judgment oracle, um, it takes the form here of five woe statements, five woes. Woe to him, verse 6. Woe to him, verse 9. Verse 12, verse 15, verse 19. Five woes that you can see there. And we're going to look at each one of those in turn. And I've got little names for each one. Uh, Woe number one is plundering the plunderer. Woe number two is shaking the secure. Woe number three is vanquishing the violent. Woe number four is shaming the shamer. And woe number five is two kinds of silence. I hope you can hear in that list something that all of these woes have in common. All of them have to do with God turning the tables on Babylon. It's, it's Babylon's particular sins kind of coming home to roost. The punishment is going to fit the crime, in other words. And so what Babylon has done is going to be done back to Babylon. They're going to reap what they've sown in a variety of different ways. So let's look first at verses 5 through 8, plundering the plunderer. Um, Now, there's a lot to cover today, so I don't want to get bogged down in verse 5. I'll just acknowledge, you can see in the ESV footnote, it says the meaning of the Hebrew of the first two lines is uncertain. So you may see a translation that reads there, wealth instead of wine. Um, Assuming wine is correct, um, I think that what the Lord's trying to picture to us here, taking the verse as a whole... It's trying to picture for us Babylon as this drunk person who is um, under the influence of the the alcohol that's flowing in their body. They're starting to speak and to act in a really arrogant way. They're, They're bragging, they're strutting around, they're feeling bulletproof, not realizing that contrary to the way they feel, they actually just look like a fool. They look like a fool. And that's what it's like for Babylon to keep up this program of um, imperial expansion. They're sucking up all the nations around them into this one massive empire. But it's going to be so short-lived, as history, in fact, bears out. And so this, this massive, mighty empire is going to become, instead, the object of ridicule. As all of these nations that they once dominated are going to have the last laugh against Babylon. Um, Now, 
Sorry about this. I think this is the last one for this passage. Verses 6 and 7 are also a little bit hard to translate. So you're going to want to get bogged down in these difficulties. Um, But again, if you look at different translations, the same Hebrew word can mean both debtors and creditors. Um, And so the question is, which word picture is being used here? Is Babylon given out a lot of loans? That's one one perspective. Babylon's given out a lot of loans, uh, and now all the people who owe them money are coming out to attack them because I guess they don't want to pay it back. Or maybe they've been using oppressive lending tactics or something like that. And um, I think that's what the ESV translation is suggesting. Um, The scholars that I looked at here were were more in line, though, with the New American Standard translation. If you looked at that one, it says this. I think this is a little more vivid, actually a little bit easier to understand. Woe to him who increases that which is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with debts. Will your creditors not rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. In other words, the picture here is that Babylon has been kind of buying on time. Okay, so uh, they, by plundering these, all these other nations, it's like they've been taking out loans one after another. And so they look very wealthy, but it's all been bought with a credit card. And the balance is about to come due. They're going to have to pay it back. The bank is going to call the loan. And um, I think this is very consistent with uh, verse 3 from last time. Yes, Babylon seems powerful, seems unstoppable even right now, but their turn for judgment is coming. They cannot just keep on borrowing forever and never paying it back. And so verse 8 says, all of those nations that you once plundered, now they are going to get to plunder you. Okay, so that's the second woe. Um, uh, the, the second woe that's coming next then in verse 9 um, is uh, woe to him. Sorry, that, what we just talked about was the first woe. Now to the second woe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So the picture here is all this wealth that Babylon has been getting uh, through war, conquest, they've been using it to beef up their own national security, um, and they fancy themselves as being like this bird that's built its nest way up in the cliffs where you can't climb up there to rob the nest, and so they feel very safe because it's in this very secure location. See, they're not safe. They're not safe because they are not out of the Lord's reach. Verse 11 is saying that the fortress of a house that they've built with all this ill-gotten gain, the the very building materials that they've constructed with are going to cry out. They're going to bear witness against them. Reminds me of uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and the the telltale heart where the murderer tries to bury the body, body under the floorboards of the house, but he can't escape the sound of the heartbeat of the person that he's killed that won't stop pounding from that place where he's hidden the body under the floor. It's like the very house is bearing witness against him of his guilt. It's that inescapable guilt that he cannot put to rest. And Babylon cannot put to rest the way in which they have built all this power and supposed security. No fortress they can build can truly protect them if they built it through sinning against the Lord. 
so the, the third woe is very similar to the second one. So this third one, um, starting in verse 12, uh, we're calling vanquishing the violent, vanquishing the violent. And it starts out pretty much the same, um, almost as though I wonder if we're supposed to imagine that this is what the stones and beams of that house are crying out, is the content of what they're crying out. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Um, it reminds me of Psalm 127, where it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, right? And um, as the section goes on, you can see there's a, a, a new element here, a contrast between the king of Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, and the kingdom of God. You have this, this diminishing, kind of disappearing glory of Babylon, compared with the expanding, spreading glory of the Lord. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, verse 13, that the peoples labor merely for fire? In other words, all these people are doing all this work to build up the empire and build cities and whatnot, and it's all just going to be burned up. What's the point of all these building projects, all this labor to expand the empire when it's all going to be destined for fire. And the nations, it says, weary themselves for nothing. You're, you're, you think that you're building this massive, glorious, uh, durable um, kingdom, but you're not. And in fact, when you look at history, the Babylonian Empire really was extremely short-lived. Nineveh, uh, so the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, fell in 612 BC. We've talked about that a lot already, right? Um, they fell to allies of Babylon as Babylon was on the ascendant. Babylon fell to the Persians in 539 B.C., less than 100 years later. Less than 100 years later, Babylon is gone. What a rapid rise and fall. But what the Lord's saying here is not just that Babylon is going to fall. It's that Babylon's glory is going to be replaced with something else. It's going to be pushed out, overshadowed, overwhelmed by something else. And it's by the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful image that is. I love that verse. How, uh, you think about um, how do waters cover the sea? Um, well, they cover them completely, Right? All over from one shore to the other, there's nothing but water, and it's deep and it's wide, and it's it's just overwhelming everything, right? You might have seen all the, the submarine, everything was in the news. You might have seen maybe some graphics with the news reports of just how deep the ocean is. It's kind of mind-boggling when you see these little diagrams like, here's the Eiffel Tower, and it's just this much of the ocean, and then there's all of this beneath it to the ocean floor. How the waters cover the sea. And hear what this is saying. In contrast to the Babylonian Empire, which is vanishing and temporary in spite of their um, kind of delusions of grandeur, there's this other reality. There's this other power that is going to inundate the world. It reminds me of Ezekiel's river. 
And it starts out like a little trickle from the temple. But then the further it goes out from the city, the deeper and deeper it becomes until it becomes this mighty current. Swift and deep, flowing outward and carrying the rule and the reign, the life-giving salvation of God to the ends of the earth. Reminds me also of um, Daniel, too, uh, also. Um, You remember King, actually I think it is chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and so on. Um, And you remember what happens at the end. It says, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And all the pieces of the statue, it says, the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And that's really the story of all of history. It's empire after empire vanishing from the face of the earth and caught by the wind and carried away until there's nothing left. But then the kingdom of God, enduring and growing and spreading and filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, The next woe. Number four. Okay, so this one is rather lurid, isn't it? We're calling this shaming the shamer. Um, Here might help to think along the lines of Genesis chapter 9 and Noah after the flood when he gets drunk and he's uncovered in his tent and Ham makes fun of him, goes and tells his brothers about it. And remember how uh, Shem and Japheth end up treating their father much more respectfully, covering him. Babylon has been deliberately humiliating other nations. The Lord pictures it here as as being just as heinous as getting getting somebody drunk with this goal of taking advantage of them, humiliating them. And what's happening here is, again, the tables are being turned. So as Babylon has treated others shamefully, now Babylon, too, is going to be put to shame. It also helps to remember that in the prophets, God's wrath, God's judgment is often pictured as a cup, a cup of wine that the people under judgment are going to have to drink. And you can see this even in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. That cup of judgment that Jesus was going to drink for us. And that's part of what's going on here when it says the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, Babylon. And utter shame will come upon your glory. And so this nation that once had other nations kind of under their thumb. They were the ones in power. They're now going to find everything turned upside down. They're going to be the ones who are exposed and humiliated with nothing to cover or protect them. Um, Just as an aside, um, 
This is interesting, this imagery of drunkenness coming up a second time here, um, as it did in verse 5. And it's telling, I think, that the Lord chooses this particular metaphor um, repeatedly here to illustrate Babylon's folly. Um, And I think it's just a good reminder, as we try to think about what the whole Bible says about various topics, um, for all that the Bible says favorably about wine, and that is a piece of it, um, it's also, the Bible is also pretty brutally honest about the foolishness and the shame associated with drunkenness. And so as much as we want to celebrate uh, and preserve Christian liberty and the whole idea of receiving all kinds of God's gifts with gratitude, I just want to point out it's wise for us to keep these deliberately ugly word pictures, ugly word pictures in mind, um, showing us um, this complete perspective, how drunkenness, frankly, makes us stupid. It leads to people doing foolish and shameful things. And God's word is very attuned to that, um, just in the kinds of illustrations that it uses when it's making other points. And I don't want to belabor this because it's not the main point here. I just want to sort of flag it for you in your mind so that this will be part of your mental framework uh, for thinking what the Bible says about this bigger issue of alcohol and so on. Um, but again, coming back to the main point of the passage, where we really want to land here is on the fifth woe, verses 18 through 20. Um, And I'm calling this one two kinds of silence. You can see two kinds of silence here. First is the silence of the false gods of Babylon. And then second is the silence of the whole earth in the presence of the one true God. And so Habakkuk starts here with a theme that we see often in the Bible. Um, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And it's pointing out the absurdity of people worshiping things that they made for themselves. If you made it, then how can you expect it to take care of you or to help you in any way, really? And in verse 19, then, he pictures somebody trying to to get their idol to wake up and, and come alive, do something. Um... Reminds me of, sorry, I have young kids, so this, these illustrations I think of. Reminds me of one of the frog and toad stories that we really like where toad plants a garden, but he's very impatient um, about the seeds not growing as soon as he plants them. And so he gets down next to the garden, but he says, seeds, grow! And of course, nothing happens because that's not the way it works. No matter how much he shouts at it, you know the, the, the seeds are not going to grow. And it's that kind of absurdity that Habakkuk is playing on here, except that really it's even worse, because in in Toad's case, the garden would grow eventually. There was life there, right, in those seeds that was going to come up out of the ground. But this idol maker, he doesn't even have that to look forward to. So Habakkuk says, look, you've you've smothered it all in gold and silver, the very attempt to make these look glorious and shiny and powerful and wonderful, it's like you've smothered them. <laughs> and so if there, ever, if there ever was any breath in it, well, there sure isn't now. Can't talk to you. Can't teach you. We should think, of course, of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Remember when 
prophets of Baal are dancing around the altar and they're gashing themselves and they're crying out to Baal all day long and Elijah's poking fun at them. He's saying, maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe he went on a road trip somewhere and he hasn't come back yet. The point being, of course, Baal is not there to hear them. There's nothing that he can do for them no matter how enthusiastically they call upon him. Once again, as in verse 14, Habakkuk is against setting up for a big contrast, right? Big contrast. That's what the idols are like. But there is one who is the living God. The living God. One who is awake to all of these things. Someone, with a capital S, that you did not create, who cannot be reduced to or contained within a visible form of gold or silver or wood or stone. It is not just that Babylon has the wrong gods and Israel has the right one. Let's just compare these religions and see which one is is right. You've got these gods over here and this god. Which one's the right one? No, it's it's different from that. This, This someone that Habakkuk has in mind is in a different category altogether. He's in the category of reality. He's the creator. Listen to what Psalm 113 says. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. And so Habakkuk concludes, but the Lord, but the Lord, here is reality. Here is the great fact that transcends the universe. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's actually unusual Usually when the Bible talks about people being in the presence of God, um, the response called for is not silence. Often there's actually quite a lot of noise going on in the presence of God. Think about the Psalms. Think about let everything that has breath praise the Lord, right? Let rivers clap. Let mountains sing. The trees of the field will clap their hands. And that makes it all the more striking for Habakkuk to say, Let all the earth keep silence. And I don't think it's an accident that in Revelation 8, which we read earlier when the the seventh seal is opened, representing the culmination of all the others, um, there was silence in heaven. Um, There's a lot of noise in Revelation as well, but not after the seventh seal. And at the end of that chapter, you remember what the eagle cries, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth. The blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so, as we saw in our recent study of Revelation Sunday School, that silence represents what? It represents a hushed anticipation of the judgment of God that's coming. It is coming. It is inevitable. 
And however long Babylon may seem to be getting away with their crimes, God's people are being called to wait silently and expectantly for him to act. His judgment is going to fall, and Babylon is going to meet its end, and it's going to give way in the end to the inundation of the world with the knowledge of the glory of God. I think there are a few lessons we can take away from this passage just to conclude here. Um, I'm going to characterize as something past-oriented, present-oriented, and future-oriented. The first past-oriented, we can just be encouraged looking at this chapter by looking back and seeing that God kept his promises. Um, Babylon, indeed, did fall decisively, totally, completely. For however long Israel had to wait... God indeed keep, it did indeed keep his word. And so in the fall of Babylon, we can see exemplified for us the sovereignty of God over history and nations and empires. We can see the justice of God against tyranny and violence. We can see the faithfulness of God in doing what he says that he's going to do. That should feed, then, our patience, our trust, our faith as we wait for the coming judgment that we do not yet see. We can also look back and see that whereas um, Babylon is now relegated to the history books, um, the same thing cannot be said of the knowledge of the glory of God, which has indeed begun to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea through the proclamation of the gospel, which is so much of the story of, of Acts, right? That we On a recent sermon series on Acts, that's what it was all about, the gospel extending to the ends of the earth. Christ is reigning now over his kingdom, which will not fail. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. The kingdom of God is in so many ways the opposite of the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdoms of this world that are like it. Second thing is we can be warned in this chapter presently. We can be warned against participating in the arrogance of Babylon, against participating in the arrogance of Babylon. And, I mean, of course, you and I are not um, emperors. We're not in a position to rip off whole nations. We're not world conquerors. Um, But we are in a position every day to be tempted to trust in our own resources and strength to keep us secure. Um, And if that's what we're really counting on, then there's no limit then to what we might do to prop ourselves up at the expense of others. Babylon is pictured here as constantly consuming from others in order to to stay prosperous, to stay protected, stay safe. In contrast to that, think about the Lord Jesus, so much different, the kind of king that he is, right? A king who lays down his life so that his people can live, who is constantly giving himself for his people. And the irony is that through Babylon's self-promotion, that was what resulted in their ultimate destruction. And then on the other thing, you think about Jesus and how through his self-giving sacrifice for sinners, that was the path to resurrection, life, and glory, right? And the ultimate security of his power and his kingdom forever and for us as part of it. And so that can lead us to the, the last thing, which is looking forward to the future. 
just want to be reminded by this passage that you and I are still waiting, as Habakkuk was waiting. We can still look around us, and we can still see a lot of evil people and institutions and nations seeming to have a lot of power with no end in sight. The empire of Babylon is gone, but the spirit of Babylon is present in every generation of the world. It's the beast and the prostitute of the book of Revelation, both. And in their heyday, remember from Revelation, the beast and the prostitute both seem invincible. They seem inevitable. But the people of God are reminded that they are not, that that is an illusion It is temporary and it is passing away. They are vanishing forces that will be brought to nothing by the power of God. And that means for the people of God that you are not to be afraid of their threats and that you are not to be allured by their attractions because both are temporary and fleeting. The judgment is coming. And more importantly, the judge is coming. The judge with a capital J, the Lord Jesus Christ, once crucified for sinners, but now crucified no longer. He is seated on his throne, and he is coming again. The question is, are you expecting it? Is your heart filled with that patient, trusting expectancy? We talked about last time, waiting with steady confidence and hope for the promises of God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. For God alone, our souls wait in silence. Our Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.